Father God, it is a truth that our lives are in your hands, and we thank you for that. It's so comforting, so, so comforting, because there's no one, no one else's hands I'd rather be in than yours. And Lord, yes, it is our instinct to think that Adam's innocence in the garden before he fell was was man's perfect state. But innocence is not righteousness. In order to be declared righteous, man needed to fully obey your law. And at that time, it was so easy because there was just one law. Don't eat of that one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It was actually given for his own good so that he would never know evil. But failed even in obeying one law. So then you, Lord, willingly humbled yourself, became a man to do what we could not do, resist all temptation to evil, and live a perfectly righteous life. And then miracle of miracles, you paid the wages of sin on our behalf. Spiritually and physically, you died on our behalf. You took the curse of sin upon yourself, shed your own human precious blood to cleanse away our sins so we could be declared righteous by holy God and set free from being eternally separated from you, Father. The fact is that redeemed man is greater than innocent man. And we gain far, far more in the second Adam, the Lord Jesus, than we ever lost in the first Adam. And those who do so, do so by choice. Because it is not your will that any man should perish. So we thank you that your, that your perfect state for us is one of full glorified redemption. Not innocence. So that we could dwell in fellowship with you forever in a literal heavenly city on a literal heavenly earth. Bless our time together now as we look at that literal city on that literal earth. May your spirit be our teacher and may Jesus be praised for it is in his name we pray. Amen. In the second session on our study of heaven, we are going to discuss what God's inspired word reveals to us about the new Jerusalem, God's eternal city bride, when it literally coexists on the new earth. The Lord, you know, had prohibited the Apostle Paul. When he was caught up, he was privileged to have a glimpse of the third heaven. He was caught up there for 2 Corinthians 12, but he was prohibited by God to speak about it. He could not say anything about what he saw. He only told us, I hasn't seen or ear heard. You can't even imagine what's up there. But later, the Lord actually commanded the Apostle John, who he also privileged to see heaven in its final stage. He commanded him, and John was in the spirit when he was caught up, however that works, I don't know. He was commanded to write what he saw, and that's what he did in the last two book, uh, chapters of Revelation. Now, of course, his human words, 
even though they were inspired by the Holy Spirit, they cannot begin to relay to us the glory and the splendor of what he saw. You know, try to put what he saw in human words. <clears throat> Nor can the PowerPoint slides that you'll see behind me begin to do justice to what awaits all who have called upon the Lord to save us from dying in our sins. So I want to say that up front. I'm doing the best I can with pictures, but even that picture right there is incorrect because the gate is pearl and, you know. But you have to use what you can use. And, and, and I'll tell you what, it's a struggle to find pictures on the Internet that are biblically accurate. <clears throat> um, so in Revelation 12, uh, 21, excuse me, 21, one. If you have your Bibles, you can open to Revelation. Otherwise, I always put the verses up there. He recorded what he saw after that horrible scene of the great white throne judgment, the judgment of all the um, unsaved. And after that, he, uh, he saw a new heaven, it tells us in 21.1. I saw a new heaven and a new earth, and the first heaven and the first earth were passed away. One thing I want to point out, and this is for those of you who know what I'm talking about. If you don't know what I'm talking about, just forget it. You know. But he says the first heaven and first earth were passed away. He did not say the second earth or the second heaven, which eliminates the gap theory, which teaches, it's a false theory, which teaches we are now living on the third earth. And it was a compromise with evolution because they stuck billions of years between the original created earth and what they say was the second earth. You see how it's got three earths up there? But this dismisses, this negates the gap theory right here because he says the first earth passed away and that's this one, not the second earth. Okay, for what it's worth. Now, even though the earth on which we do dwell today will be wondrously renovated during the time of Christ's 1,000-year reign, and the curse will be removed during the 1,000-year reign on the animal kingdom and on the earth. You know, that's when the lion will lay down with the lamb and your kid will be able to play in the snake pit. But... Um, <clears throat> So the curse will be removed on the animal kingdom and on the earth, but death will still be, um, men will go back to living long lives like they did before the flood, but people will still die if they overtly disobey God. Christ will reign, king of kings, so it'd be hard to imagine anyone rebelling against a perfect benevolent dictator, but there will be because people who will be born during the millennial kingdom born will still inherit the sin nature um, but anyway what was I saying okay uh, even though this the earth will be renovated during that reign the thousand year reign afterward after the millennial kingdom and the final rebellion of Satan this earth upon which we live will completely pass away and then God will usher in a new creation in the eternal state we could say that this will be the world's resurrection. We have a resurrection. The world is going to have a resurrection. When I read John's words there, I certainly think, oh, I should be on the gap theory. There it is. Three, see, three years. False teaching. Even though it's in a lot of um, study Bibles. 
just cross it out, not true. All right, but when I, when I think about the earth's resurrection, I think about uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, about what happens to a person with a new birth. If any man be in Christ, he's what? A new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. That'll be exactly how it'll be with the earth. We're resurrected, the earth will be resurrected. All things will become new. What John described seeing was the yet fulfillment of a prophecy that God revealed long ago. This was not new teaching just found in that crazy book of Revelation. And Revelation, by the way, is not crazy, and it is a very easy book to study and understand. It's very organized, very just... People just say, oh, you can't study that because you can't know. But yes, you can. I studied it through it twice, and I love the book of Revelation. Anyway, Isaiah 65, 17, all the way back in Isaiah, he foretold, God foretold through Isaiah of his plan to create a new heavens and an earth. A new earth, Psalm 102, verse 26, also speaks of this present earth and the heaven. Now, when it says heavens, it means the atmospheric heavens around this earth that they would perish. And the Lord Jesus confirmed this in his famous Olivet Discourse when he said, heaven and earth will pass away. But what? But my words will never pass away. Matthew 24, 35. And the Holy Spirit led Peter, the Apostle Peter, to explain how this is going to happen. How's it going to happen? He said, and this, my dear friends, is true global warming. The heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth. The first earth, many theologians say, was created and designed by God for man's probationary state. And the new earth is going to be recreated and designed by God for man's perfected state. And it is going to be exceeding abundantly above anything that we could even begin to ask or think to ask of. Including both the pre-Edenic fall garden paradise is going to be beyond that. And it's going to be beyond the kingdom of Christ on earth, the millennial kingdom. Because think back, Satan entered the garden, didn't he? The Edenic garden. Satan was allowed to enter. God had a reason. Man had to go from innocence to righteousness. I explained that in the prayer, I hope. And sinful people will be born during the millennial kingdom on earth. But in the eternal state of the new earth, no evil of any kind will ever, ever gain admittance. No sinners, no evil, no nothing. So it will be exceeding better than even the Edenic Garden or the Millennial Kingdom. And while there will be many similarities between this present earth and the new earth, such as cities, dwelling places, walls, gates, trees, rivers, people, songs, Thoughts, praise, etc., etc., there are also going to be some entirely new things. You know, God's creativity knows no bounds. I would love one day, I got to thinking about this, I would love to just have a Bible study where I showed you nothing but slide after slide after slide after slide of some of God's amazing 
creation. I just spent a few minutes last night looking up, I, put, I typed in Google search, um, beautiful, unusual flowers. Oh, you just look at them. You look at them, and if you don't know and understand there is an intelligent designer behind this universe, something's wrong with you. Have you ever seen a white egret orchid? Write that down if you haven't. White egret orchid. It looks like a bird flying. Absolutely. How about a hummingbird? Have you ever studied? Amazing creation. Peacocks. A giraffe. Snowflakes. Everyone different. Butterflies. Dolphins. I love dolphins. The Venus flytrap. A porcupine. An anteater. The clownfish. A seahorse. I mean, I could go on and on and on. If, if God could create all that on this earth, I mean, why, do we, why would we think, oh, a new earth, that's not possible? Of course. And it's going to have all kinds of things that we never even thought of. His creativity knows absolutely no bounds. So there'll be things that we have never seen before. There's going to be things we're familiar with, basically. But there's going to also be some conspicuous absences. And interestingly, the first one that is mentioned by John in the first verse is that there is going to be no more sea. Now, I don't know God's reason for this absence, but we can scripturelate. You know what that means? <laughs> I made that, that word up. Speculate using scripture. Scripturelate. Um, for one thing, we can scripturelate because the sea is used in the Bible as a symbol, a symbolic image for the wicked. For example, Isaiah 57:20 says that the wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. There is no peace to the wicked. You see, like the troubled sea, the evil men are restless. And this is because they have no inner peace. They love the darkness more than they love light. And they are always dredging up sin. And nothing better pictures their hearts than a storm in the middle of the ocean. That's one place I would never want to be. In the middle of an ocean in a storm and at night. There's nothing dark. I've never been on a cruise. But they say uh, if the lights go out and you're out in the middle of the, it is in a storm. I mean, otherwise you have the stars, but the sea is kind of a scary place. Our earth is presently covered by 70% water, the oceans, which the Lord has used. The original earth did not have oceans, but after the flood, oceans were created to separate people. He has used the oceans to separate people and often to set boundaries for the nations. Now, can you just imagine how many additional wars there would have been in history if there were no oceans to separate continents and countries? Can you imagine? Seas mean, and I'm talking about oceans, seas, they mean separation, they mean storms, they mean danger. And they picture the restlessness of the wicked, none of which will be present on the new earth in the eternal state. In the new earth, all boundaries between people will be unnecessary because there will be perfect harmony. There will be no storms. There will be no dangers. There will be no wickedness. And yet, for you beach lovers, 
this does not mean that there will be no more water, just no more oceans. Verses 21.6 and verse uh, 22.1 tell us of the fountain of the water of life from which all heavenly citizens will drink freely. Will we drink in heaven? Yes, we will drink freely of the fountain of life. And guess where this pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeds from? Where does it come from? The very throne of God and the Lamb. You see, both the Father and the Son occupy heaven's throne. So God the Holy Spirit is pictured by the water of life that eternally flows from that holy throne. And that we have all three members of the Trinity right there. You remember how Christ spoke of the Holy Spirit in terms of a river in John 7, 38, when he said, He who believes on me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. And then John goes on to say he was speaking of the Holy Spirit. So from the New Jerusalem, this pure crystal clear water will branch out to the uttermost parts of the new earth, making the entire new world a well-watered paradise of abundant resources and lush vegetation. And this is not saying there won't be lakes and ponds and rivers, just not big, dangerous oceans. So if you love to lie, you know, on the waterfront, in your beach chair, just lay on a pond or a lake. <laughs> and then you're going to say, but there'll be no sun. <gasps> we'll talk about that. All right, now, if, so if you ever wondered if we're going to drink in heaven, the answer is yes, we're going to drink from the river of the water of life and be satisfied by the Holy Spirit. How long? Forever, forever. The New Jerusalem, and Jerusalem, by the way, means city of peace, which most certainly has not been the case for the earthly Jerusalem, has it? Not ever, not today and not ever. But finally, um, there will be a city characterized by peace and holiness. There is not a city in this sin-cursed world today or in history past that can be rightfully called either a place of peace or a holy city. And I'm talking about not even Jerusalem, not Rome, not Mecca, not Kanchipuram, which is a, like a holy city for Hinduism and Buddhism. The only truly holy city will come to the new earth straight from holy God. It is a celestial city for which the one for which Abraham looked. It's the city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. It is a city described in Galatians 4:26 as um, uh, Jerusalem which is above, the mother of us all. See, Babylon's not our mother. Babylon's the mother of this earth. The New Jerusalem is the mother of us all. There's so many analogies in the Bible. Marriage, you know, it's just perfect. It's the New Jerusalem that the author of Hebrews referred to when he said, for here we have no continuing city, but we seek one to come. 
It is to this holy city, which is yet incomplete in the third heaven, that the souls of all who die in Christ today go to await the resurrection of our bodies. In verse 3 of chapter 21, John then heard a great voice speak from heaven and said, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. Although there are going to be an infinite number of new blessings in heaven, the most wonderful of all is not going to be um, our reunion with loved ones. I mean, we look forward to that, but that's not going to be the most wonderful part of heaven. Is not going to be seeing our Christ-built dwelling places in the Father's house. It's not going to be walking on the transparent gold uh, street in the city or gazing at the gates of pearl or the precious jewels of the foundation. What is going to be the most wonderful, wonderful blessing of, of being in heaven, the new Jerusalem. You know, we shall behold him. It will be the presence of God. He will dwell, which means tabernacle. He will dwell tabernacle with his people. That wasn't even the situation in the Garden of Eden. Remember I said he would just come down and walk with Adam in the cool of the day. Uh, and he tabernacled with men for another time, another time, but it was only for like 33 years, wasn't it? And he will again tabernacle with men for a thousand years in the kingdom. But on the new earth, in the new Jerusalem, he is going to dwell with us forever in the full display of his glory. It is going to be the complete fulfillment of his name, Emmanuel. God with us. Another blessing of the New Jerusalem <laughs> will be the conspicuous absence of some things that we have unfortunately become all too acquainted with in this life. Verse 4, John says that God, here's when he finally does it, New Jerusalem, he will wipe away all tears and there will be no more death neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. Alleluia. Amen. Tears are such a common experience in this, this life. It's, it's really hard to imagine life without them, isn't it? We come into this world crying, <laughs> And we leave this world sighing with everybody around us crying. And why is that? Well, it's because of sin and death. But in the eternal state, all past sorrows will be turned to joy that no man, no Satan, can ever take from us. No more sin. No more broken homes. No more broken hearts. No more prisons, no more policemen, no more security guards, no more soldiers, no more funeral power, parlors, caskets, cemeteries, no more goodbyes. And if you have any doubt about this, listen to what the one who sits on heaven's throne says in the very next verse. He says, behold, I make all 
things new. And then he essentially told John, John is standing there gawking, and you would be too, he tells him basically, stop gawking and keep writing. (laughs) For these words are true and faithful. Remember one thing God cannot do? Lie. And this is where we have to anchor ourselves in the midst of all the sorrow and pain of this world and all that is going on right now in this world. And it is, if you don't know the Lord, it is frightening. It is really frightening. But I know the end of the story, so I know it's how it's going to end. But that's where we have to anchor ourselves because the promises of God are true and the words of God are faithful. He cannot break his word or he is not God. Do you know that he elevates his word even above his own name? That's in Psalm 138 too. And he sets it as the criteria for proving that he is God. If I break my word, I'm not God. And he cannot deceive. He cannot lie. You can bank on it that there is going to be a creation like this and an existence like this. If it were not so, he would have told us. Well, the first sight to capture John's attention as he gazed at this descending holy city was that she had the glory of God. Of course. And he described this shining brightness as being like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. What is jasper? Well, jasper is a transparent crystal similar to a diamond, but with a golden reddish cast to it. So think of this. The New Jerusalem is compared to a giant, transparent, gleaming bright diamond. In a sense, then, the eternal city is not only characterized as the bride of Christ, but she looks like a gleaming, bright, huge wedding ring. There you got the marriage thing all over again. Now, the next feature of the New Jerusalem that John described was her wall. A wall around the city, which he said is great and high. And then in verse 17, we learn that it is about 216 feet high. I don't know if you can picture that, but my husband said it would be like two tall pine trees, you know, extra tall pine trees, one on top of the other. But that is a tall wall. (laughs) That's a high wall. But... It's ridiculous, I mean, it's high by our standards, but it is absolutely ridiculously small, just ridiculously small compared to the height of the city, which is about 8 million feet high. So you got a 216-foot wall and an and a 8 million foot high city that it's around? You see, the the wall is not necessary. It's not necessary for protection against anything evil. It is, however, there to symbolize God's eternal protection and the security of his people. It's also there to serve as a beautiful boundary for the city. Remember, the city comes down and it sits on the new earth. 
Well, in the wall of the city, there are 12 gates, three on each side, and on each one is inscribed the names of one of the um, 12 tribes of Israel. And attending at each of those 12 gates is an honor guard angel, an angel. The city at its base is a square, and each side measures in it says 12,000 furlongs, but if you translate to us, it's like 1,500 miles in its length and its breadth. So that makes a base, a base of over 2 million square miles. 2 million square miles at the base of the city. We, we've never city, seen a city like that. I mean, that is huge. It would stretch from north to south from the Canadian border down to the Gulf of Mexico, and from east to west, it would go from the Atlantic Ocean to Colorado. Huge. That's the base of the city, 200 million square miles. That is so massive that many believe the new earth is going to be much bigger than this earth, that it may be the size of the sun. I mean, who knows? Even more astounding is that the holy city is equally as high as it is in length and width, which means that it rises into the sky 1,500 miles. And put that in perspective, by present standards, that would be 780,000 stories high. Clouds are at seven miles above the earth. The city is 1,500 miles. Airplane, my son, most airplanes fly six to seven miles above the earth. My son said he's been in his F-18 up to nine miles and 0.4 above the earth. But compared to 1,500 miles, that's still nothing. It's, it's tremendous height of this city. This is the holy city. This is our eternal home. Its height supports the idea that in our resurrected bodies, we will no longer be limited by gravity. I don't think there are going to have to be stairs <laughs> or elevators in the new city. Uh, we're not going to be limited by gravity or electromagnetic forces, so we're going to be able to travel just as easily vertically as we are horizontally. That supports that, the size of the city. Now, the measurements of the city... Uh, tell us that it is either shaped like a pyramid, you know, the base, I told you how big the base is, and the sides, but it doesn't tell us there are four sides. So some speculate that it's either the shape of a giant pyramid or the shape, like this, of a giant cube. All sides are equal, so it would be a cube. Now, <clears throat> what do you associate pyramids with? Each, of course you do. Egypt, ziggurats. Egypt is a picture of this world. You can go online and <clears throat> hear a lot of um, Islamic teachers believe that it's going to be the shape of a pyramid. But I'll tell you what, I strongly disagree. I, this, I can't be dogmatic, but I think this city is the shape of a cube. Why? Because that was the exact shape of the holy of holies in the tabernacle, a cube where God's Shekinah glory dwelt with his people. 
And this would suggest to us that the entire New Jerusalem city is God's holy of holies. Verse 14, John tells us that the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb are written on the 12 foundations of the wall of the city. See that little tiny wall? That doesn't even proportionately show how how ridiculously small it is. But on the wall of those foundations are the names of the 12 apostles. Now, can you imagine John? John is looking at this in the spirit. How thrilling it must have been for him to see his own name on one of those foundations because he was one of the apostles. And then a few verses later, he tells us that each foundation is... uh, garnished with all manner of precious stones. And then he lists them. And I'm not even going to try to pronounce some of them, but each stone represents the glory of God in a special, unique way. And they also kind of match up with the stones that were on the breastplate of the high priest, which showed that they were close to the heart of God. And there's a lot of meaning there which I won't get into, but it's just fascinating. By the inclusion of both the names of the 12 tribes of Israel in the gates of the city and the 12 apostles in the foundation of the city wall, it's evident that the citizens of this eternal city, this new Jerusalem, are going to be both Old and New Testament saints. So don't, again, don't just think this is just the church. This is all the redeemed of all the ages. And yes, it looks like a bride because it's the bride, it is the bride of God the Father, the bridegroom of, of Christ. Um, and who else is going to live in this eternal city? Who else? Well, the angels. Hebrews 12, 22 tells us that um, it will be the dwelling place of an innumerable company of angels. Not the fallen, but the holy. And also included, and I firmly, firmly believe this. And this is also on your handout if you want to read further. I believe that the holy New Jerusalem will be the eternal home of all the miscarried babies. I have one up there. Um, All the aborted babies. All the young infants and children of all the centuries who died before they could understand their need for salvation. I believe it will also be the eternal home for all the mentally disabled. Now, Scripture does not indicate a specific age of accountability. You know, a time when a child or a person becomes responsible to actively repent and receive the gift of salvation. But it does indicate that only those who have a knowledge of good and evil, regardless of their age, have the responsibility to repent. Read Deuteronomy 1.39 and read your handout on that. So, back to John's description. He tells us that the construction material of the wall, just like the city, is of jasper. There we go back to jasper. Pure gold like unto clear crystal. That's in verse 18. So with human eyes, if we were trying to look at this city with just our human eyes, I think we would need extra dark sunglasses (laughs) to even look at it. 
And the repeated mention, as he describes this city over and over again, he uses the word transparent, transparent. So the idea of transparency suggests that the whole city was purposely designed by God to transmit his glory no matter where someone is positioned in that city because it's all transparent. And there's nothing to hide in heaven anyway, is there? It's all transparent no matter where you are in the city, 1,500 miles up, you can see the glory of God and the Lamb. We also learn <laughs> that the 12 gates of the wall around the city consist of one pearl. You notice that? Mm -hmm. One pearl. That picture is right. This doesn't mean that the gates are made of pearls. You know, you always read about the pearly gates, you know. But they're made, each gate is actually one pearl. The gate itself is one pearl. That's what the scripture says, not me. It says that. You know, the largest pearl to ever be found in recorded history was found in the Philippines. It weighed 75 pounds. Now, that's a big pearl. But the New Jerusalem pearls will each weigh, have to weigh tons. Because remember, the wall that these gates are in, the wall is 216 feet high. So these are giant pearls. And that's why I wore this jacket, because it's got the pearl. They were fake pearls, but yeah, I wore it on purpose. It is through these tremendous one-pearl gates that the redeemed saints of all the ages will pass when they go to and from the city to explore the rest of the new world. You know, you're not going to be stuck in the city. The gates never close. You get to go and explore the whole new earth. In fact, I don't wonder, without our gravity bodies, and, you know, we don't have to breathe oxygen bodies, that we could explore the whole universe. There's no limit to what, what we might do. But as we go in and through those gates, it will forever remind us of, um, of the, the Lord Jesus. And let me explain this. A pearl, you know, is the only precious gem, the only precious gem that is not a metal or a stone. It's a gem that is formed within a living creature, primarily an oyster. Yes, there are some clams and mussels that produce pearls, but that's very, very rare. The oyster builds a pearl around something like a parasite or a grain of sand that hurts it, you know, it invaded his, his shell, it penetrated into his shell, and it's irritating, it hurts, it's painful. So the pearl begins to build around that irritation. So a pearl is a beautiful product of pain and suffering. The giant pearl gates of the New Jerusalem will remind us forever, and there's another reason I don't think we forget about this life. They will remind us forever of the one whose answer to those who caused him pain and suffering was to invite them to share his eternal home. See, everything is symbolic and, you know, it's probably literal, but it's also symbolic. There's a meaning to everything. In the scripture, there's so many types. I mean, there's a meaning for everything. The hummingbird teaches us something. The giraffe teaches us something. It's... Well, evidently, there is just one street in the city 
And because it, it speaks clearly in verse 21 of the street, the street, that's singular, um, the street of the city. Just as there's only one way to heaven, there will only be one way in heaven, the street. The street, like the city itself, is made of pure gold. As it were, here's the word again, transparent glass, transparent gold. Now, in our present world, we use concrete and asphalt or blacktop for streets, don't we? Because here, gold is so precious, we only wear it on our fingers or, or on our necks or our wrists. I didn't look up the price of gold, but gold is expensive. However, in heaven, we will literally walk on metals that today we treasure in small quantities for jewelry. God can do that, can't he? By the way, God likes gems and pearls and gold. So, so do I. I was made in the image of God. I think he likes bling. <laughs> the street will be the beautiful sunshine color of the finest gold. And it will be translucent in the radiant light that everywhere will permeate the city. Is, is this beyond your imagination? It's getting beyond mine, but it just sounds awesome. So there is an old story of a rich man who, before his death, negotiated with God to allow him to bring some of his earthly treasures with him when he came to heaven. Now, it was an unusual request, because as you know, you can't bring anything with you to heaven except the treasures you laid ahead. But, uh, but since this man had been, this is just a joke, okay? Since, since this man had been exceptionally faithful, God said, okay, you can bring just one suitcase. So the man found an extra big suitcase and he loaded it down with as many gold bars as he could stuff into it. Well, when the man appeared before the pearl gates of heaven, very heavy suitcase in hand, an angel said to him, I'm sorry, but you will have to leave that suitcase behind. Well, when the man then told him, showing him his permission slip, <laughs> when he told him that God had made an exception for him, the angel said, like a TSA agent, he said, well, okay, but I do need to examine the contents before I let you pass. So he took the suitcase, he opened it up, and he saw, he saw the gold bars inside the suitcase, and very perplexed, he said, you brought pavement? <laughs> well, in verse 22, John tells us there is no temple in heaven. Why? Well, there's no need for a temple in heaven because God and the Lamb are the temple of it. Also, there will be no need. Now, look at this. I underlined it. Here we go. Hmm, is that the one? No, that's my pavement joke. 
And, oh, here it is. Need. Under, you see how I said no need? No need. There will be no need for the light of the sun or the reflected light of the moon to shine in the city because the glory of God will illuminate you know, every single corner of the city. So some say no need of the sun doesn't mean there won't be a new sun. And a new, he's going to make a new earth and a new heavens. So there could be a sun. There could be several suns. I don't know. It could be a bunch of moons. It just says there will be no need. You wouldn't need it because he lights up the whole city. Nothing will be hidden. In the New Jerusalem, the tree of life. <laughs> the tree of life stands freely and eternally accessible to the redeemed of all the ages. It's a fruit tree that bears 12 kinds of fruit each month, 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 time, time, and in endless supply. I guess it'll be like Jesus feeding the 5,000. You know, you pluck one, another one's right there immediately. Um, so you will be happy to know we do eat in heaven. We do. And we don't have to worry about weight. And we don't have to eat to live. We can eat, just eat for the enjoyment of the flavor. Although it looks like our menu is going to be restricted to fruit, as it was in the Garden of Eden. However... Oh, you vegans are so happy right now. <laughs> However, what we do not know is the flavor of the fruits. Do you see my little hidden, where's Waldo? <laughs> Fruit hanging from the tree. Uh, with God's unlimited creative genius, maybe some of the fruit tastes like chocolate or ice cream or... Killer ribs from Texas Roadhouse. You know, a fruit like, you don't even have to kill the cow to enjoy the flavor of the, the steak. <laughs> That's my imagination. <gasps> Could be, though. All right, Genesis. You know, the Bible is one continuing book from cover to cover because it was written by one author. One author. He used men, but one author. Divine author. Genesis, the first book of God's holy word, describes the first Adam with his wife in a beautiful paradise reigning over earth. Revelation, the last book of scripture, describes the last Adam, the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, with his wife, the church, in a perfect paradise to come reigning over the new earth and the entire universe. Genesis, first book, tells us how man lost his chance to eat of the tree of life. Revelation shows redeemed man will yet eat of the tree of life. In Genesis, man's early home was beside a river. In Revelation, man's eternal home will be beside a river. In Genesis, we have the record of man's first rebellion against God. In Revelation, we learn of man's final rebellion against God. Genesis reveals the tragic, uh, the tragic sorrow that resulted from sin. Revelation promises God will wipe away all tears from their eyes. Genesis tells us of Satan's sin and the curse. Genesis, I mean, Revelation tells us that Satan, sin, and the curse are removed forever. Genesis records the first death. Revelation promises there shall be no more death. One continuing story from beginning to end. Because the author and finisher of scripture is God. He is faithful 
and he is true. And he would not have promised us heaven if it were not so. Since we live in the here and now, it's difficult to comprehend the reality of life beyond this world that we've only known. I mean, it's the only one we've ever known, experientially. Um, and it's the existence of fallen human bodies on a sin-cursed earth. That's all we've ever known. But the reality is not determined by our limited ability to understand it. For example, imagine twins in their mother's womb discussing the subject of life after the womb. <laughs> and one twin says to the other, you know, I believe there is a big, beautiful world out there with lots of people, mountains, blue sky, oceans, animals, birds, flowers, and things we can't even begin to imagine, to which the other twin says, you're crazy. That's just wishful thinking. Be realistic and stop putting faith in something you cannot see. This world right here is it, buddy. There's absolutely no life beyond the womb. Now, is the unbelieving twin correct? Is he? No, because there is life outside the womb, even if he could not imagine it. And there is also life after the tomb. Heaven is real, even if a person cannot imagine it or is just flat out in disbelief. It is a real place. God's word says that without faith, it is impossible to please God. Right? For he, for he who comes to God must believe that he is. You must believe that he exists and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. You know what faith is, according to the Bible? Faith is the substance of things hoped for. Substance is real. We don't have a hope-so hope. We have a sure hope-hope. It's a substance hope. It's also the evidence of things not seen. I've been studying this scripture, this Bible, for over 40 years, and I have more evidence that, that my faith is real, that this book is God-written, than I, it's just evidence, evidence. I have no doubt if I could just, by osmosis, give you my assurance of faith in some of you who are doubting, I would do it. Because I know this is God's book. And heaven is a real place because he promised us that we will go there if we know his son. We don't know a lot about what the Lord has in store for us, but we can be sure that there will be abundant occasion to fellowship with one another, with others who have gone before us and who will go after us. We will have abundant occasion to worship him, to praise him, to sing. I'll be able to finally sing. I don't know where my daughter got that voice. It sure wasn't from me, wasn't from my husband. We'll be able to sing, play every musical instrument, I think. Harp, violin, you name it, piano. 
Um, we'll engage in all kinds of new and wonderful, holy activities in heaven. But the greatest blessing of all will be to spend eternity with the Lord Jesus and to behold him. It says in Revelation 22.4, that's where the song came from, that we will see his face. He will never hide his face from us, which is probably why New Jerusalem is going to be so transparent. In heaven, we are going to be able to love to our fullest degree, to live to our fullest capacity, to think with divine wisdom and insight, to see things from his perspective, to respond to one another and to our environment with the mind of Christ. And we will be understood by everyone, all others, you know, <laughs> no miscommunication gaps, no flawed theology, no arguments, no breakdowns, no misunderstandings, no disagreements. <gasps> Won't that be refreshing? Yes. Alexander White, famous Scottish preacher of the last century, asked these two thoughtful questions regarding heaven. He said, what will it be like to be there? And what would it be like not to be there? So I ask you, have you made your reservation for heaven? Do you know the password, which is the word, the word of God who became flesh? Acts 4.12, there is salvation in no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. There is only one name. When you stand there, before God, and he said, well, this is just, you know, analogy thing. But when you stand, he says, why should I let you in? It's not because of your suitcase full of gold, is it? Because you say, I am unworthy to enter heaven and be in your presence. But because of the death and shed blood of Jesus, my Savior, I know you see me, God, in his righteousness. I've exchanged my sins for his righteousness, and he will say, come on in, thou good and faithful servant. You can be sure of your salvation if you have called upon the name of Jesus to save you from your sins. So will you do that? Will you do that today? Simple prayer. Lord, forgive me of my sins and save me. Come into my heart. You know, he said, to as many as received him, to them gave you the power to become the sons of God. That means you receive him. Remember that he stands at the door and knocks? But what do you, he's a gentleman. He's not going to barge in and just take over and say, okay, you're safe. You have no choice in it. He knocks. You have to open the door and he will come in. So let's take care of that today if you're in any doubt whatsoever. All right? All right. We are going to... Um, what are we going to do next? We are going to have Christian. Right? Christian. This is, this is a family affair. I got all my... I just think if I brought all ten of my grandchildren, we'd be here all day. This is, this is Christian Fruth. He injured two of his main piano fingers last night in basketball, so he's, he really didn't want to do this because he says it's going to be hard for him. But this is the only Christian in our church. He's going to get mad at me, but 